Matthew 23, verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they have the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred. And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God, and by him who sits upon it. Matthew twenty-three, twenty-three. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done, without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, 
For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, You will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, our subject this morning is the judgment that Jesus will exercise. And from the child in the playground, that's not fair. To the sports fan on the couch, oi ref. To Elon Musk and his thermonuclear lawsuit. All of us believe in justice. Traditionally, this Sunday is known as Advent Sunday. It's not our usual pattern to follow closely the church calendar here at St. Helens, though with the number of Christmas trees we have up this year, you might doubt that. But rightly understood, Advent celebrates not chocolates and Haribos in daily windows opened each morning nor even first and foremost in the early weeks, the first coming of Jesus. Advent is about the return of Jesus, ultimately as Lord and Judge. It's our normal practice to work through books of the Bible systematically. That means we can't dodge the bits that we might otherwise be tempted to leave out. In our series in Matthew's Gospel, we've moved from Matthew chapter 19 with Jesus making clear that God does believe in divorce and will divorce his people, Israel. And now we find ourselves in Matthew 23 with a pronouncement of judgment on Jerusalem. We're going to find the material for our key headings in the final three verses. 37 through 39. Here, Jesus heralds his coming judgment on Jerusalem. Before we get into it, two preliminary points. You will have noticed the seven woes. The number seven is significant. Seven symbolizes completeness in the Hebrew scriptures. The case has been examined. The jury is unanimous. The verdict is out. The judge dons his black cap. This is it. 
And the audience to whom Jesus is speaking is first century Jerusalem. This is the historic city with the temple of God, where God has focused all his dealings with humanity. God's presence, God's pardon, God's praise. Jesus is not singling out Jerusalem in the 21st century. This has nothing to do with Gaza or Israel today, except in the sense that it has to do with all of humanity. And we'll come back to that at the end. So four points from our three verses, and one of them will trace back through the chapter as a whole. One, verse 37 Jesus judges Jerusalem with tears in his eyes. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? I say tears because in Luke 19, we read of Jesus drawing near to Jerusalem and weeping over her. But there's no sense of gleeful vengeance, simply tearful sorrow. Repeatedly in the Bible, God exercises patience. He waits far longer than you or I ever would have. It's almost as if God gives his people one chance after another chance, after another chance, after another chance. He appears almost endlessly patient. God does not desire the death of a sinner, but rather that he might turn from his evil way and repent. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. He is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish. Almost endlessly patient, not absolutely endlessly patient. Ultimately, justice must be done, and ultimately, justice, judgment must fall And ultimately, the verdict is pronounced and the sentence delivered. The image there in verse 37 is so powerful, isn't it? It speaks of God's patience, God's kindness, even, you might say, pathos, God's heart. I don't know how many chickens you've witnessed gathering They're chicks. I mean, chickens are unbelievably stupid, and chicks even more so. Chicks can find a thousand ways of dying that you and I would not even imagine. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? Consider God's patient forbearance. He waits four centuries 
in Genesis 15 for the wickedness of the nations to reach its completion. He doesn't deliver Israel over to the judgment she deserves in Exodus 32 at Mount Carmel. In the book of Judges, again and again and again, he relents when David numbered Israel. He relented. It's possible to be lured into a sense of presumptuous assurance by the patient forbearance of God. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead to repentance? Jesus judges not cheerfully, but tearfully. He judges deservedly. And here we focus on the four words at the end of verse 27. There's so much that's chilling about these three verses. These four words are up there. And you would not. Jerusalem, Israel, the Pharisees trusted in their own skin-thin, papered-over performance, even as Israel, the Pharisees, rejected God's grace-filled mercy. And you would not. The chapter as a whole is an exploration of the Pharisees' skin-thin performance coupled with their willful rejection of Jesus. Externalism is the name of the game when it comes to establishment religion, and the Pharisees are past masters at it. The seven woes come in three pairs plus one. Jesus prosecutes and exposes. The first pair, 13 through 15, we find a cul-de-sac religion that is hell-bound. Jesus' teaching, you shut the kingdom of God, verse 13, in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would go, enter to go in. You travel across land and sea to make disciples. When they become disciples, you make them twice as much a child as hell as yourself. Cul-de-sac religion because it's Christless. They do everything they can to prevent people turning to Jesus. All form, no substance. They travel the world seeking to promote their own philosophy, but their philosophy refuses to recognize Jesus. And so it's hell-bent. This analysis could be directed at any proselytizing ideology that leaves Christ to one side. Humanism, secularism, Islam, Hinduism, atheism, progressivism. Anything that seeks to promote its own form of self-righteous ethic 
while shutting the door on forgiveness to be found in Jesus. The second two woes come in verses 16 through 24. The religion of the Pharisees is blind and foolish. Jesus' word is actually moronic. You blind morons, says Jesus. It's gnat-picking and camel-swallowing, verse 24. His turn of phrase is remarkable. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. They don't seek the true meaning and the genuine pursuit of God in his word and instead construct a whole raft of virtue signaling and loophole religion with get-out clauses rather than a serious concern for the person of God. Their convoluted contracts are evidence of deceitful heart. You blind guides, verse 16. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, then he's bound by his oath. You blind morons. Their contracts with loopholes and subclauses are evidence of a whole culture bereft of truth. My word is my bond. In utmost good faith, armies of lawyers, detailed small print, profound deceit. There's a law firm 100 yards away from 200 yards away from here. They've just taken on 18 newly qualified lawyers. Just in case you're wondering and you want to hire one, a newly qualified lawyer in the city comes in at £125,000 a year. Don't let's kid ourselves that the city is a place of integrity. The only reason a culture needs so many lawyers is that it's fundamentally dishonest. They give of their mint and dill and cumin, making a big show of what they give. Entire personal strategies set aside to promote the public image indicating social responsibility. But true justice and mercy and faithfulness a million miles away from the individuals in the boardroom. So it's cul-de-sac, hell-bound religion, this religion of man. And it's blind and, Jesus' words, moronic religion this religion of man that rejects the word of God and its paper-thin death-trap religion. Verse 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you clean the outside of the cup, the plate, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. Verse 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you're like whitewashed tombs, outwardly appearing beautiful, within you're full of dead people's bones. This has to do with outside and inside, veneer and reality, image and substance. You clean the outside, but inside, 
outwardly you appear, you're full of. And the washing laws of the Pharisees were legendary. We read about them in the Gospels. Wash the cup, the bowl, the seat, even the couch on which they reclined had to be washed. And they kept these laws meticulously to ensure that they were pure. What was going on in the heart? Verse 25, greed, self-indulgence. So have we grasped that no amount of polish can cover over a cabinet riddled with woodworm? Jesus tells us that it's what comes out of the mouth that comes from the heart, and out of the heart come all these things, evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual immorality and theft and false witness, and these are what defile a person. So no amount of external polish or show can deal with what comes out of the heart. We need Jesus to cleanse us. Richard Bogonan, broker, very well known to numbers of us, a great advocate of personal Bible reading and Bible study. He's an ex-broker in Lloyd's. He says every broker he knows has a big book. I mean, he brings something much bigger than this, which is a book showing what a good person I am. And the book is full of deeds, pro bono work, help a London child, trusteeships, charitable assistance. And he said the broker's book saying, what a good boy I am, is always signed by his mother, because she obviously is a great believer in his goodness. But every broker has a mouth. And what comes out of the mouth comes from the heart. And out of the heart come all these evil things. Evil thoughts. Sexual immorality. False witness. And contact with a dead body in Jewish law made a person unclean, and so tombs were ritually whitewashed at uh, major festival times, painted white to make sure people didn't come into contact with them, touch them, and to make them beautified, no matter whitewash, can deal with what's inside. And Jesus can see straight through it. And it's the final woe that seals the deal. Verse 29, murderous religion that will do anything to avoid Jesus, even banning Jesus' spokesmen and women from the church, ejecting them whilst at the same time making a show of their so-called biblical credentials. You build the tombs of the prophets, you decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we lived in those days, the days of our fathers, we wouldn't have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, brood of vipers. How can you escape being sentenced to hell? I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes, some of whom you kill and crucified, and some of whom you flog, you will flog in your synagogues, 
and persecute from town to town. The establishment holds a 350-year anniversary service in St. Paul's Cathedral as a celebration of Thomas Cranmer in the prayer book, whose words and liturgical form lie behind every part of Western culture. They hold their civic services and they parade in all their pomp and ceremony. And even as the establishment is celebrating the great works of Thomas Cranmer, who was burnt in his day, the establishment is plotting a form of revision to the rules of the church, which indicated it has no intention whatsoever of taking seriously the teaching of Thomas Cranmer. Woe to you. And the establishment will hold a 500-year anniversary celebration of William Tyndale's Bible. You can't understand Shakespeare without understanding the Bible. And so in 2026, there'll be a great celebration of Tyndale's Bible. And even as the establishment parades in its pomp at its civic ceremonies and godless services, the establishment will be plotting the overthrow of those who take the Bible seriously. And Jesus can see straight through it all. I was thinking of calling it Painted Lady Religion, but I think that's unfair on the lady, really. But Painted Lady Religion, think of Tess in uh, Tess of the Dervils or uh, Lady Havisham in Great Expectation. Cul-de-sac, hell-bound religion that blocks Jesus out of the picture. Blind, moronic, moronic, gnat-picking, camel-swallowing. Papered over, death trap, insisting on its own righteousness and all the time refusing to have anything to do with Jesus who is the only one who can change the heart, wash us clean and bring us truly to God. And Jerusalem's recognition of the prophets of old but refusal to recognize Jesus seals her fate. And Jerusalem's killing and crucifying and flogging and stoning of the apostles shuts off God's offer of mercy. And Jerusalem's persecution of the followers of Jesus brings down God's verdict. She is judged through tear-stained eyes. She is judged deservedly. She is judged as Jesus removes himself from her and therefore any possible hope of forgiveness. Verse 38. See, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until. Again, this is so chilling, isn't it? On the lips of Jesus, the house is the temple God's temple is the place where God dwelt. That Jesus could describe the temple of God as desolate as a result of him leaving is an extraordinary claim to divinity, is it not? And from this point on, Jerusalem, the city on earth, 31.8 degrees north, 31.2 degrees east, ceases to have any spiritual significance in God's dealing with man whatsoever, other than as an example of the end of man-made religion. 
Jesus can see straight through it. The thin veneer, the godless cul-de-sac, the Christless rejection of God, all its pomp and ceremony, its externalism, its refusal to take God and his word and his son Jesus seriously. From this point on, Jerusalem ceases to have any spiritual significance whatsoever other than as a symbol of God's judgment on man-made religion. And in 70 AD, under General Titus, the emperor Vespasian ordered the invasion of Jerusalem and the description, you can read about it in Josephus' Hundred Year War, makes for post-watershed reading. It is one of the most gruesome genocides in all of history. None was allowed to live. They pursued the women and children into the sewers. And the streets ran like river, rivers with human blood. Finally, Jesus will return as judge. Verse 39. You will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, initially one might think, oh, this refers to Jesus' resurrection. But Jerusalem did not actually see the resurrection of Jesus. He's talking in the second person plural by this stage. He's talking to the Pharisees. You, plural, will not see me again until you say. Though the disciples saw his resurrection, but the Pharisees didn't. And Psalm 118, which is quoted here, it's the third quotation from Psalm 118 in this section, speaks of, the king coming to his city at the last, enthroned as lord and judge, triumphant over all his enemies, putting all wrongs right, judging justly and fairly at the last. So our subject has been judgment, advent, Jesus will return. He can see through the thin veneer of all our pretense. By not engaging with Jesus, Jerusalem sealed her fate. She was judged then. She will be judged ultimately. Christless, wordless religion is cul-de-sac religion. Blind religion, death trap religion, it shuts the door on the possibility of God's forgiveness for humanity. And as risen Lord Jesus declares, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The Father has given all judgment to the Son. God has set a day when he will judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance by raising Jesus from the dead. The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels 
in flaming fire, bringing judgment on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will face punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. Jesus will judge through tear-stained eyes. He longs for people to return to him in repentance. Jesus will judge deservedly. He can see into the depths of our being. Jesus' judgment on Jerusalem was a removal of the opportunity then to turn back. This may be your last ever opportunity to hear the gracious invitation of Jesus to turn to him. For some of us, we may never hear it again. We will face Jesus at the last. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would grant us to see ourselves as the Lord Jesus sees us and to see the Lord Jesus as you see him. And we ask it in his name. Amen.